This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hello, welcome to the second season of the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, uh, the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. And for those of you new to this podcast, this is a space where we discuss new research and theory in the field of youth mentoring with a rotating list of, of leading scholars in the, the mentoring, youth development, education and juvenile justice spaces. So if you're always curious about what's new in in mentoring research or what we're learning about how caring adult relationships can best support children in a variety of ways, this is a really hopefully fun and easy way of kind of learning about new research and uh, wrapping your head around uh, some of the ways in which caring adults have an influence on the lives of kids. So uh, welcome. Uh, It's going to be a great second season. You can find the first season of this podcast on the National Mentoring Resource Center website, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Uh, And just as a reminder that this podcast series is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, and that is the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and you might hear us refer to OJJDP uh, quite a bit throughout some of these podcasts uh, as they uh, often sponsor some of the research that we're talking about, including the study that we will be talking about quite a bit today. So uh, they've got a great history of not only supporting programs through uh, funding and training and technical assistance, but also doing uh, some research here and there uh, in ways that help move the field forward. So we really thank OJJDP for their generous support of, of both this podcast and the center as a whole. So, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, if this is your first time listening, you can always find kind of the archived episodes of this podcast on the National Mentoring Resource Center website, and that is nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org. Uh, we're also on SoundCloud and iTunes, so uh, find us and download us where you can, and, and we hope you enjoy this, this new season. I'd like to welcome my guest today, and he's somebody that I actually work with quite a bit on the National Mentoring Resource Center project, Um, that's Dr. Gabe Coopermink. And Gabe is a professor of psychology and the director of the doctoral program in community psychology at Georgia State University. Uh, He also happens to be a research board member, I think the co-chair of our uh, research board, and he serves Uh, Also, as an advisory group member for the Canadian Women's Foundation Initiative on Group Mentoring Programs for Girls, and we'll be talking a lot about group mentoring today. And as a a principal investigator and a co-PI on numerous grants and contracts from federal, state, and private sources, he's conducted both large and small-scale evaluations using methods ranging from qualitative case studies to randomized trials. 
Uh, and Dr. Cooper Mink was also recently appointed uh, as an associate editor of the Journal of Adolescent Research. So welcome, Gabe. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Gabe, I want to start off talking kind of big picture about group mentoring before we dive into the the big study that you just wrapped up for JJDP. And uh, you spent a lot of your career kind of being at some level the group mentoring uh, guru, I think, for our field. And I feel like group mentoring programs kind of take a bit of a backseat to kind of the more common, perhaps one-to-one models. You know, we think of big brothers, big sisters, that type of thing. And But, you know, we did a survey at Mentor of Programs nationally a few years ago and found that there were more youth being served by group mentoring programs in the country than there were by one-to-one programs, right? And that really surprised me, uh, even though I've been in this field for for quite a long time. And when I hear people talk about group mentoring, it's kind of like how physicists talk about dark matter or dark energy, right? They know it's there. They're not quite sure how it works or how it has an influence, and uh, they have to pay attention to it, but it's a little uh, confusing to them and hard to make sense of a bit um, because we're so focused on that one-to-one thing. So I just wanted to open up by asking you for, you know, what should we think of group mentoring? What does this offer young people that perhaps one-to-one mentoring doesn't, and, and what do we not think about enough when we think about group mentoring? You know, to be honest, I kind of stumbled into it. I, I was working with a local school um, that was serving a large uh, student body that was that was predominantly immigrant families, and they had concerns about the you know the young people kind of learning the system, just knowing how to do education in the United States and things like that. And we, at the same time, were looking for ways to to give uh, psychology majors at our at my university some real world opportunities. So I sort of, saw, sort of saw this as a win-win and we sort of created this uh, program, if you will. I don't think it really counted as a program at the time where we were just matching up a, a college student with a group of high school students to just kind of teach them the ropes, show them that you know people that looked like them could also go to college things like that. That evolved into a program that we eventually started calling the Youth Development Program. And, you know, getting back to your questions about what does it offer that we often don't overlook, there were kind of two things that were behind my thinking. One was I had done a lot of work with evaluating a program called the Teen Outreach Program that is not a group mentoring program, but had some of the elements. There was a facilitator working with a group of, of students, you know, that met regularly. And what we saw in that was a lot of opportunities where the kids in the group um, were helping each other and, you know, giving each other advice and things like that. And we were really interested in something that's been talked about in the literature called the helper therapy principle, that, you know, sort of the best way to improve or the best way to learn something is to try to help somebody else or try to teach somebody else. So I think that's one of the things that that is exciting and something that we don't think about enough with with mentoring because we don't put kids in that opportunity to help others. They're they're often kind of the receiver of of help. Um, the other thing is I was working with a colleague who um, who uh, was a clinical psychologist specializing in family systems. And so we were really interested in systems, how groups of people, families or other groups can interact and how that works for um, for development. Uh, 
And we're really interested in a, in a model of pair therapy that was developed by Dr. Robert Selman at Harvard. And this was a process where they would have a therapist and two young people, peers. And what was really cool about this is that the interactions between the peers was the central focus of the process. And we thought it would be really cool if we could recreate some of that. So that, that was some of the thinking that we had in it. So, you know, again, I think some of the advantages are that, that it, it puts people, it puts young people in a position of being, you know, being able to provide some help to others and, and also, you know, learn some skills by doing the skills. Thank you, Gabe. I, I, I've always liked the fact that you know, in, in these group mentoring programs, the youth are both, you know, they are receiving mentoring from the adults that are running the group, obviously. But uh, as you said, I, I've always liked the fact that it then puts them in a role where they can be helpful to others, right? And um, and, and grow a little bit in that way. And I want to unpack that kind of process a little bit more here and just uh, kind of how this functions at the relationship level. So in one-to-one mentoring, I think there's this assumption that you need to have this incredibly close, intimate, you know, mutual relationship and that all the eggs, so to speak, are put in that basket, right? That you need to have kind of this very meaningful personal bond. But obviously in a group program, you're not going to be able to bond at that level, maybe with the mentor, uh, just because there's other kids in the mix and you're probably not going to be able to bond that closely with with the other kids kids. And so I'm wondering, like, is that intimacy and closeness of the relationship spread out over everybody? Um, I'm just curious about how that works in in a group mentoring relationship. How much does does that relationship matter? Yeah, I, you know, and that's potentially one of the downsides. And I think it's been one of the things that um, has given a lot of people uh, pause or maybe even some skepticism about uh group mentoring and its potential. Way back in 2002, I think Carla Herrera and her colleagues did, a, did a, I think, the first study of group mentoring. And they found exactly what you're saying. The relationships weren't as intimate or strong with the youth and the mentor. But I do think that in mentoring groups, especially ones that are working well, that less intense uh, relationship is offset a little bit by some important processes going on among the kids, among the, the, the group members. So they form a sense of identity as a group. A lot of times they even name their group or, or you know, come up with a logo or something like that. Um, they get a, a sense of cohesion and trust. And then, and then that leads to having a sense of belonging and feeling really engaged and feeling like you're contributing to something. So I, I think, I think that, that, that those kinds of processes maybe offset a little bit of the, of the less intense relationship with the mentor. And of course, the mentor is part of that group as well. So Gabe, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you the one question that I've got probably more than any other question over the course of my career and that is, you know, in these group programs, uh, you just talked about how, you know, the relationships are kind of dispersed and, and you know, it's about kind of that group dynamic, perhaps a little bit more than just the, the one intimate relationship. But it does beg the question of like, what is the right composition of a, a group like this? And the question that I always get asked is, 
what is the ideal ratio of mentors to youth in group mentoring programs? And that may be context dependent. It may be dependent on what the program is trying to do and how complicated that is. But uh, I can tell you that the the nation demands a simple answer to this question, Gabe. What is what is the perfect ratio? Yeah, <laughs> what is there one? I know there, that's a great question. You know, the the elements of effective practice has a pretty solid uh, statement about that, which says it's four to one, so four youth to one mentor. And um, when I first read that, it kind of bugged me because I looked and I couldn't find any research to support that idea. And as far as I know, there still isn't any rock solid research that supports it. But I've come to think, I think that it's pretty good guidance. Um, we students that are um, working with me on these on these the data that we have have been working pretty hard on this. And one of them, uh, Katie Hale, has has done an analysis where she compared some groups that that were in a in less than a four to one ratio with with kids that were in a group with a four to one or higher and found that um, the smaller ratio was associated with increases in a sense of school belonging and increases in students' sense of self-efficacy. So it does seem like that's a pretty good ratio to go with. I think I, I think another part of that question is it's not just the ratio, but the overall size. So, you know, there are some kind of like these hybrid programs where the group is really made up of of a group of one-to-one matches. And if you put enough one-to-one matches together and you have 20 or 30 kids in the room, you, you still have a one-to-one ratio, but that that number might be unmanageable. So so I think you have to pay attention both to the ratio and the overall size. And as with most things in mentoring, the answer is nuanced and dependent on your context and your circumstances. But I do think you make a good point in that there probably is some upper limit to the number of youth that a mentor or a pair of mentors perhaps could work effectively with. And I've often wondered in group mentoring, like how do we ensure that every young person in that group is getting a similar experience, right? And I think if you go past a certain ratio, you probably wind up with shy kids or, or you know, kids that just aren't grading groups naturally, um, getting left behind in the crowd a little bit. Before we talk about the the new OJJDP study, I wanted to just ask one more kind of broad question about group mentoring. And, you know, I know a lot of practitioners have turned to it as a way of serving more youth with perhaps a limited pool of mentors. Uh, it's a great way of, of, you know, serving more kids per mentor, frankly. But I think there's an implication there that it's easy or is as it's as easy as, you know, just kind of being in a relationship with one one mentee. And uh, my question is, what's hard about group mentoring? What is there some aspect of group programs that uh, practitioners kind of overlook as they think about putting these programs together and they get into it and they're like, oh, that was much more challenging than I I thought it might be. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. One of the reasons that programs go to to group mentoring is to serve more youth with with the, you know, a limited pool, but it's also often to save money. They, you know, the the thought is that if we don't, you know, if we can reach a lot more youth with the same number of mentors, then it's not going to cost us anymore. So, a couple of things. One is in the um 
you know, imagine a one-to-one relationship. And if you think about it as a relationship system, there's really just one relationship going on there. So it's, it's already a complex enough system, right? Because, you know, there people have differences in expectations and what they like and don't like, and they have to kind of figure out a, what works for them in that relationship. When you go to a group, imagine imagine that four to one ratio. You have four youth and one mentor, five five people all all working together. You have ten unique one to one relationships going on, plus an overall group, plus an, an overall group dynamic, right? And then all of the possible subsets. So when two kids are talking, there's three other people that have to be doing something and whatever. So just managing that dynamic and all of those things. It is hard, and it and it draws on more skills or different skills from mentors, and different skills from the from the youth as well. Um, from the point of view of of you know managing a program or running a program, I, I don't know that it's harder, but I think it, it's different. The the kind of support and the kind of the kind of match support and things that that you need are are, are likely to be to be different and maybe maybe require more support than than you would in a in a one-to-one type of program Let's move on and talk about your recent OJJDP study of Project Arrive. Um, I'm very excited to to talk about this, and I, I know some of the folks that have developed that program, and uh, I think what they've built uh, down in the Bay Area is really remarkable, and I think can be a model for for others that want to uh, do group mentoring in in schools. But before we get into kind of what you found and, and what you studied in that program, I want to start with something that uh, a comment that is made very early in the evaluation report that you did for OJJDP. And it's that when the developers of this program first started out, they noted that there was almost nothing that they could find to help them get the program up and running in terms of implementation manuals, established best practices kind of ready to use training and, and, you know, technical assistance providers. Um, and, and I wound up feeling really sad reading that because I've been helping programs for, for 20 years and, and realized in that moment just how much of that has been focused on one-to-one. And I just wanted to get your take of, like, why do you think it is that um, – in spite of the prevalence of it and, and serving all of these young people around the country, we still don't have a good infrastructure to support group mentoring. Yeah, I mean, we've, we found the same thing. And it's not that there's nothing out there. There is there there are a few people that are doing really great, great work and have provided some really good stuff. But it isn't all in one place. You have to look pretty hard to find it. And, you know, I'm not sure why that why um, there hasn't been the attention to it, especially given how how prevalent group uh, mentoring and group programs are. Uh, My guess is some of it comes from skepticism about whether group mentoring really counts. You know, is it really mentoring? You know, a lot of I think some of the leading researchers in the field are still not convinced that might be part of it. Another is that you know, it might be kind of a developmental process for the field. There, there's a lot of really great stuff on on 
one-to-one mentoring and a lot of recognition that there are other models and other ways of doing it. And we're starting to do that. And group is one of the one of the approaches that maybe will will and hopefully start getting some attention as we go forward. Well, regardless of whether they had good help in developing it or not, um, let's talk a little bit about Project Arrive. And uh, this is a, a school-based group mentoring program uh, down in the San Francisco Unified School District. I'm, I'm hoping you could just take a minute and tell our audience a little bit about the program, the kids that they work with, and kind of what they attempt to uh, achieve within the context of their program. Right. Well, the the district has has a long history of supporting mentoring, and they've got a a larger district wide a large district wide program that serves K through through twelve with mostly one to one mentoring. Back, I guess, eight or ten years ago, there was a, a lot of attention going to addressing needs of young people who are who are getting to high school but but already kind of disconnected already you know you, you could see them pulling away more and more they weren't doing well in school they weren't attending well and they really wanted to to try to think of a program or a, a way to address some of those needs and and whether mentoring could be the way and th- their idea was why don't we try groups and and they they piloted it it went really well it was popular they they really started developing the idea and somewhere along the line uh, we hooked up with them and really started working together so the the program essentially it works with ninth grade students who've been flagged by the district as being at high risk for school dropout um, based on things like their eighth grade um, achievement and their attendance, but they also serve um, youth who are at risk, you know, for more social reasons like uh, like foster care or unstable housing or things along those lines. And the program is structured so that there there are typically two mentors um, for each group, and groups are about eight or so students. So the idea is that four to one ratio again, um, there's some variation around that, but, and then uh, the program goes all year long. They meet once a week. The mentors get training. They're provided with a, with a, a binder and there's a website where they can access all kinds of uh, group activities and things like that. There's a sort of a developmental model where, you know, you give, you start out the groups by giving them a chance to get to know each other, figure out why they're there and what they want to do with it, give them time to sort of sort out the, you know, the sort of uh, hierarchy, you know, dominance, submission, and all that kind of stuff, and then figure out what their goal is and what they're going to do, and then, and then so on. So, so there's a lot of thought put into, you know, structuring the activities while still giving mentors and the groups a lot of um a lot of leeway to decide how they want to do it and what they want to do um and also paying attention to how the group grows and changes over the course of the year. Great. Thanks, Gabe. And I really like the approach that the program takes there of not treating every group in kind of a cookie cutter way. There there is freedom for the group to kind of decide how they want to move through the the activities provided and 
you know, everyone's kind of working towards the same endpoints and goals, but they have flexibility in, in how they get there. I, I think that's a really neat uh, aspect of that. So, Gabe, I want to ask about something related to the, the youth served by the program. You mentioned that they are specifically uh, looking at young people that are at risk for uh, eventually leaving school prematurely or also including youth that have kind of um, issues going on outside of school uh, in the home, uh, delinquency, things of that nature. I know that some practitioners, some scholars uh, are of the opinion that you, it's kind of a dangerous idea to be creating programs where you're serving exclusively young people with uh, uh, higher levels of risk and putting them together in groups. The idea being that um, if you have a lot of kids with a lot of troubles together, they will kind of teach each other negative things and you'll wind up with with kind of this, this negative experience. Um, obviously, that's not the case in this program. And I'm just wondering what you might say to, to folks that are concerned that if you're doing group programs like this, you know, is that a real danger or are there kind of easy ways of mitigating uh, that concern? Well, I, you know, I've come across that concern a lot in in um, in my research and in you know things like trying to get funding and publishing this kind of work, and uh, it, it is a concern. It really it, there really is a concern because it's been found in in several studies that that those kinds of negative effects can happen. But there's also a lot of other studies and meta analyses and uh, and things in in things like group psychotherapy and other kinds of group interventions that aren't finding those um, kinds of negative effects. And so, so two things. One is it seems that that when there is a structure and some you know some kind of hands-on leadership of the program, so the kids aren't just left to their own devices, you know, like. To, to do whatever that that seems to help prevent some of that those sort of negative things. The other thing I wanted to say is that you know I've reviewed a lot of studies of programs of group mentoring programs and looked at these issues in our own studies and haven't really found much evidence of negative effects in 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 any of these. So it, it doesn't mean they're not there. But we don't know the sort of conditions under which they can occur or be prevented. And, you know, the good news, I think, is that there's very little evidence of those kinds of effects happening in group mentoring programs. Great. Thank you. And, and yeah, I, I feel like that concern is, is a little overblown uh, as well, especially since, as you noted, most of these programs are providing a lot of structure and a lot of uh, kind of supervision and and you know creating a positive atmosphere where I think some of those negative hijinks are probably greatly minimized. So, well, let's get down to brass tacks here. Let's uh, talk about the findings from your study. So, you worked with Project Arrive over the course of several years. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about kind of uh, the design of the study and and really kind of what you what you found when you examined kind of the outcomes of of this program, I'm dying to hear. Uh, kind of what this program proved it can achieve. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, as far as the design, in a nutshell, we were able to do a quasi-experimental study. So we had a group of, of young people who were participating in Project Arrive and a comparison group of, of young people attending schools 
in the district that didn't offer Project Arrive, but would have been eligible for it if their school offered it. So it wasn't a randomized trial, but about as strong a quasi-experimental uh, design as you could as you could ask for. And you know, and we did a lot of stuff to try to control for possible uh, alternate explanations and things like that. So you know a lot of our a lot of the findings that that I can talk about are things where we were comparing what happened in the participants to what happened in the in the youth who you know who were would have been eligible but weren't receiving the program and there were some pretty exciting findings the the ones we're most excited about uh, were that by the end of that one year that they were in the program the project arrive uh participants were reporting increases in support from from their teachers, increases in a sense of school belonging, and increases in a sense that what they were doing in school, their engagement in school was meaningful, that what they were doing mattered. So those are those were really exciting, especially because you know, if you keep in mind that these are kids who were considered at high risk of school dropout, who are feeling pretty disconnected, feeling unsupported, feeling like they don't belong. And Project Arrive seems to be doing something to turn around those feelings, um, at least during ninth grade. So that's one. The, uh, another is that is, it has to do with academics. One of the really cool things about this study was that we were able to follow the, the academic outcomes for, for these kids for a whole year after the program was over. So Project Arrive happens in ninth grade, and we were able to get academic records um, through the end of 10th grade. And the big finding there was that, on average, the Project Arrive um, youth were still on track to graduate from high school a whole year after the program ended. So at the end of 10th grade, while the youth in the comparison group had fallen about two courses behind in that in that time period. So being on track to graduate at the t- at the end of 10th grade is a huge indicator of your likelihood of graduating. So those were the exciting findings, the, the positive ones. Um, the the ones that, that didn't move so much or that we were uh, not as, you know, that we didn't, you know, things we didn't get really was, you know, they were, youth were invited to be in Project Arrive in part because of of poor grades in middle school. And what we found was that the grades, you know, pretty much remained poor for both groups. They, you know, they were at around the C average or or less and stayed that way pretty much through through 10th grade. So um, the program didn't didn't seem to, to have an effect on increasing achievement, but the kids weren't doing better, but they were persisting. They were earning, you know, passing grades, which is something I think an important thing. Uh, also, attendance. Um, attendance through ninth grade was a little better in the Project Arrive students, but by the end of 10th grade, there was no difference, and it was declining for both groups. So the risk wasn't going away, but it, was, it seemed to be alleviated a little bit in the, in the Project Arrive kids. The other thing is, is that you know, we also thought that the program would lead to sort of more internal kinds of changes in skills and attitudes. And we didn't find a lot of that. We did find some increases in problem-solving skills, but not in things like self-confidence, empathy, 
um, self-awareness. So those are kind of curious. I'm not sure what to make of the lack of findings there, but that's what it was. Thank you, Gabe. And certainly, I think many of the outcomes that you mentioned there uh, would be of great interest to uh, superintendents and principals and uh, folks working in the education space. I mean, it's too bad that you didn't find some of those more internal um, kind of personal level changes in the young people. Doesn't mean it wasn't happening. You just didn't detect it, I, I guess, statistically. But that makes me think about kind of, you know, what was what aspects of the program were leading to these um, these outcomes? And I know that in the study, you looked a little bit at like, can we can we figure out what was behind um, some of these improvements and and kind of what facilitated those impacts? You know, looking at things like the closeness of the relationship with the mentors and and the cohesion of the group as a whole. And in reading through it, the the report, it looked to me like the relationship that the kids had with their mentors, the the closeness of that was really driving a lot of these uh, more academic uh, gains that the kids made in terms of attendance and credits towards graduation. But I'm curious as to, was there anything that was kind of driven more by the peer side of it? I'm curious as to you know, you mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, it puts young people in the opportunity of of helping uh, their fellow classmates. And did you find any evidence that that was the case, or was was the group just creating more of a sense of belonging at school? What what exactly were were they bringing to the table to complement what the mentors were bringing? Yeah, so we did find some things, and you're right. the um, The analysis we did um, in in terms of that academic outcomes like grades and and attendance and those sorts of things uh it, it did seem to be the the relationship with the mentor feeling close to the mentor seemed to be driving those outcomes for the peer side what we did was we grouped together some some measures of of the group relationship processes and called it group climate so we were sort of looking at a positive overall group climate and seeing how what that was related to. And it was related to a couple of things. One is that a group climate did seem to play a role in improving grades at the end of 10th grade, curiously not at the end of ninth grade. So that's an effect that seemed to be like a sleeper effect, which is a, a curious one. The other thing was that a, that group climate measure seemed to be related to a couple of those internal things. And those were self-awareness and self-efficacy. So so kids that that were in that were in groups that had a more positive climate were gaining self-awareness and self-efficacy. And my thinking is that those gains by the end of 10th grade might be the thing that's driving the the increases in grades by the end of 10th grade. So there's a lot more work to be done in there, but but there is some evidence and some pretty solid evidence that, that something's going on there with the peers. Um, we just need to untangle what it is. ask a little bit more about the group kind of dynamics, the group composition. And one of the things that I was struck by in the study was that your groups were kind of really different. Some of them were all girls. Others were all 
boys. Uh, they had a mix of races and ethnicities. And and I find that when practitioners in these programs, you know, are putting together their groups, they really stress out quite a bit about group composition and, and who's going to be the right uh, fit of folks. But you found pretty consistent outcomes across all the groups. And so maybe that composition in terms of at least demographic things didn't really matter so much. So is it more about a fit of personalities? What what goes into making a, a good cohesive group um, if it's not some of these demographic things? Those are those are questions that that my team has been really spending a lot of time on on trying to answer. And I was surprised when we did those analyses. So so yeah, we had groups that were all boys, all girls some that were mixed gender and you know and that varied in how much they were homogeneous with respect to race and ethnicity and how much they were diverse and you're right none of that seemed to matter for any of the outcomes that we were that we were looking for um you know it's kind of a it's kind of a head scratcher i don't know a lot of it the one thing that we did find was was um question you asked about earlier about group size we did find that larger groups tended to be less cohesive and I think in, in report less positive relationships with the mentors. So group size seems to be important, but a lot of these other kind of demographic aspects of, of the group composition don't seem to make a lot of difference, at least for, at least for these kids, right? And they're, they're high school kids. It might be different if they were elementary school kids or, or older high school kids, who knows? And, and Gabe, did you do any analyses looking at kind of what the mentors brought to the table? I know there's been a lot of research recently around mentors that have like some kind of helping profession background, or was there anything about kind of who was leading the group that perhaps might have explained the, you know, why the groups were were successful? Yeah, well, you know, for the most part, the, the mentors in Project Arrive are adults in the school. Most of them are have have some background in helping professions, either as like guidance counselors or uh, they have wellness centers where they in in the school district where they you know they work on substance abuse and sexual health and mental health and and those kinds of things. So a lot of them have that kind of background, and and that might be. They also have some that are some volunteers from the community who come in. And we have done a little bit of looking at the role of the mentor, the background of the mentor, and we're not finding a lot there either. But I'm not convinced that that, that means that these issues don't matter. I think it, it's that that we don't have enough variability in, in our data to look at that. So that would be, a, I think, an interesting thing to look at um, in the future. The other thing, you know, from talking to a lot of mentors, one thing that came up a lot is is Project Arrive's model is to have two mentors working together with a group of kids. Um, and that co-mentoring relationship seems to be an important thing, at least in the mentor's perception. The other thing that came up was, was that it really helped if the mentors brought different skills to the table. So, so for example, some of them talked about how it was, they thought it was ideal to match a, a academic counselor with a mental health or, or, you know, person with a social work background or something like that. So they could attend to the social and the academic sides of things in their mentoring. 
So some of those things might turn out to be really important, but we just haven't really been able to tease them apart with our data. Yeah. No. Well, and yeah, and in, a, in an example like this, where all of the mentors have some experience working with kids in a school setting, um, that's that's probably going to be tough to to tease that out. But you do raise an interesting thing where if you're doing a model where there's a couple of mentors, you know, three mentors working with twelve kids, whatever it is you know, those mentors form a little group as well. And so there's probably, you know, it'd be interesting to study kind of the cohesion amongst mentors, right? Are they on the same page about how they're, how they're running this and, and what they're telling the kids? So a lot, a lot to unpack in these programs for sure. I want to go back and visit a little bit something that that we brought up earlier. And that was, you know, when I think of group mentoring programs, once again, I, I think of kind of highly structured curriculum driven programming, uh, where in some cases, even an over-reliance on the activity of the week or whatever can kind of get in the way of, of some of the relationship stuff, or at least I, I worry that it does sometimes. But here, it kind of, I want to revisit kind of that mentor choice uh, and the group choice in terms of how they interfaced with the curriculum, because it seemed like there was a bit of a hint here that one of the secrets to success was mentors kind of ignoring the curriculum and and going off on their own and just kind of reading the mood of the group. And, you know, hey, maybe we'd planned on doing a certain activity today, but, you know, some of the kids in the group are upset. So let's talk about what happened, what made, you know, like... How much like should group mentoring programs just start winging it, or is it still important in your mind that they kind of follow some rough plan of of activity and action? Yeah, well, it, you're right. I mean, I think a lot of programs are very curriculum driven, and you know, so at one extreme, you can find programs that are all curriculum, and you even have to start one wondering is that even mentoring if there's no chance for the kids to interact and, you know, those kinds of things. The other extreme would be totally winging it. You just stick a bunch of people together and say, let, let me know how it went. You know, I, I would have some concerns about that as well. What, what we tried to do in Project Arrive, we sort of called it a, what is it? We, we you, you know, use different terms, but at one point we were calling it a curriculum with creativity. But, you know, the idea is to have an overall model. Everybody's kind of got the same picture of what of what we're trying to accomplish with with the program. There's a focus on a specific focus on helping young people who are just entering high school to adapt to and succeed in school. Right. So it's about turning around this high risk for school dropout. And a, a thought that the way to do that is by creating a safe space where they can, where the youth can feel like they belong, like they are getting some support and, and those kinds of things. And I also mentioned that, you know, we pay a lot of attention to the development of the group so that, you know, there is a getting to know you phase. And there's some theory behind this too. Um, Bruce Tuckman developed this model that a lot of people are aware of that, that groups go through these stages of forming, storming, norming and performing. So they get to know each other. They figure out who's in charge. They start figuring out how things work and how they're going to work together. And then they're ready to, to you know, pursue a goal and do their task, if you will. So that's the structure that we put on it. The specific activities that they do are pretty predictable. Kids are concerned about friendships. They're concerned about dating. They're concerned about 
drugs and alcohol. And those are the types of things that that come up in the group discussion. So we have activities around those types of things. You know, there are also skills like things around how to study effectively or how to talk to teachers and how to present yourself. Those kinds of things there, you know, there are activities that that are skill building as well. But we give the the mentors and the groups a lot of leeway in doing that. I guess the other thing too, with this sort of development over the course of the year, part of what we hope happens is that over time the kids are taking more ownership and more decision-making power in what they do. So by the end of the year, it's really a, a team that's working together as opposed to a, a leader telling the kids what to do. Uh, it's a nice way of looking at it. And I love the phrase curriculum with creativity. I think that's, that's a nice, succinct way of, of putting it. And I'm glad you mentioned the Tuckman, uh, you know, stages of, of groups. I've mostly encountered that in kind of professional business kind of contexts. Um, been part of a lot of groups that never got out of the storming stage. Um, but I think it's an interesting framework for for a program like this and in, in that there really are these stages that over the course of a school year you can you can move these these kids through. And that's a nice a nice framework for thinking about what you might do in each of those uh, four four chunks. I want to ask one last question about this program and you touched on it earlier and that you found some effects lasted through uh, the end of sophomore year, which is great uh, that there seems to be kind of this lingering impact from the program. But you also noted that in a few other instances like attendance, you know, by the end of that sophomore year, the the kids in the program and, and your comparison youth really looked fairly similar. And there was some backsliding from the project arrive students. And so my question is for a program like this, it's all about creating a group where you feel a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a reason to engage in school that perhaps you didn't have before. Like, what do you think the outcomes of something like project arrive would be if it was a multi-year program? If you perhaps kept that cohort together um, and I know kids move away. There's logistical challenges with that. Not every mentor wants to do a four-year commitment, but but I often wonder, like, why why just do a year of something like that? And any thoughts about kind of are there models of group mentoring that are are multi-year like that and can provide that kind of group support over the the course of of all four years of high school? Yeah, I don't know of many that are that are able to do it for more than a year. And I think it has more to do with the practicalities and the logistics than anything else. The way Project Arrive is set up, it's really a matter of resources. Even if there was a lot more money, you know, big giant grant or whatever, there's still a limit on the number of adults in the school that can commit to a year, much less a multi-year group. So I think doing a multi-year group would mean making some pretty significant structural changes in in something like Project Arrive. You'd have to like go out and and develop more community partners and things like that, and that would create its own logistical challenges. So it's not really answering your question. You know, I'd like to think that a multi-year program would produce stronger results. Like maybe maybe being in a program for a couple of years would start leading to some of the types of changes that we weren't seeing in a year, like increases in self-confidence and things like that, and, and maybe even better grades. 
what, what, what we're actually interested in doing if we're successful in, in getting some more funding for this is to is in part to look at what happens after after that year. So does the group sort of hang together in a more informal way? Do the youth continue to seek mentorship from their mentor even after they're not in the formal program anymore? Do they find other mentors? Are there ways that we can encourage that? So those are the kinds of things that we're hoping to move toward as we go forward. That would be wonderful if you could study that. In fact, I was just about to ask you if you'd had any even just anecdotal, you know, kind of evidence that, uh, you know, once you form this this group of young people that may not have even known each other before the program started, that they kind of hang together, that they they kind of develop a crew, so to speak. And I, I have to imagine that at least in some of those groups, that probably does persist. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we've talked to mentors that have been doing it for, for a couple of years or whatever. And one of the things they actually complain about is that it's hard to it's hard to start a new group because the old ones won't let you go. They keep showing up at your office or at your classroom and <laughs> and wanting to to hear more. And so, on one hand, they love that and they want to you know they want to continue to be mentors. But on the other hand, they need to move on to another group or to you know other aspects of their professional life. So, so I think a lot of that does happen, but you know we we haven't studied that in a formal way. Well, thank you, Gabe. Before we wrap up, anything else you'd like our audience to know about Project Arrive or things that you uh, thought were secrets to their their success? No, not really. I mean, I think it's still it's still a work in progress. We're really excited about the the positive things that we found, and are really have really been working hard at trying to figure out how we can make it an even stronger program. And I think more importantly, how to sustain something like like Project Arrive over time. It requires a lot of resources and, and getting big grants is hard to do. So how how you maintain something like that over over time is a real challenge. Yep, definitely. And one that I think everyone in our field is is constantly wrestling with. Well, thank you. And I really appreciated you kind of unpacking not just the findings from your study, but kind of the mechanisms behind them and, and kind of how you felt like all of this was was working. Um, I just think it's a, a wonderful model, and I encourage anyone in our audience that's interested in group mentoring to uh, seek out the evaluation report uh, that Gabe and his team put together for OJJDP. Uh, you can find that on the National Mentoring Resource Center website, and we'll post a link to it along with this recording of the podcast so that folks can read a little bit more deeply and see kind of what you were examining and and really hopefully, you know, think about those things in their own programs. How might they measure uh, the cohesiveness of the group? How might they measure, uh, you know, deviation from a set curriculum and is that good or bad? And, and these are all, you know, useful food for thought uh, for anyone running a group mentoring program. So I really appreciate it, Gabe. Before we wrap up, uh, I do want to ask you a the bonus question. This season of uh, Reflections on Research, I will be asking the same bonus question to all of our guests. And it's really an open, uh, open-ended thing here, right? So not necessarily about group mentoring. You can talk about any aspect of the world of youth mentoring you'd like. And the question is, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the mentoring field or the mentoring movement, what would it be? 
That's not a hard one for me. I think you kind of heard it from a lot of what I've been saying over the last uh, last hour or so is I think we need to find more ways to put youth in the driver's seat, put them in charge of, of managing what's going on, because I think that's where a lot of the growth is going gonna, is gonna to happen. Well, that is a nice, succinct answer. And I think there's a, a growing movement of people that agree with that sentiment. Um, I'm thinking particularly about Tori Weaston Cerden and and her critical mentoring where, I mean, those young people are literally helping run the program, right? They, they're they answering the phones, they're interviewing staff uh, where they hire people. So uh, they, are, they are not only receiving mentoring, but they're in the driver's seat in a way that I haven't seen in in many programs, and that was a good a good suggestion for our field, and and hopefully folks will uh, take that to heart and, and make those types of changes over time. So, uh, thank you, Gabe. I really appreciate your time this morning uh, talking about this project and and group mentoring in general. And you know, once again, you can find episodes uh, of this podcast on the National Mentoring Resource Center website. And also a reminder to folks that if you need help running your program, if you need, uh, you know, whether it's group mentoring or not, we are the largest provider of free technical assistance to any mentoring program in the country. If you go to nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org, there's a big red Get Technical Assistance button you can click, and we will pair you up with uh, one of our cadre of experts around the country and get your program the help it needs to improve whatever it is uh, that you want to make better about your services for young people. Feel free to take advantage of that free service, and uh, it's a great way of of getting expertise and, and help for your program. So on behalf of OGJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, thanks again for joining us. And you know, remember, the research in this field may seem definitive sometimes, but I think we really decide what matters in this field through dialogue and through discussing research the way we have with Gabe today and by keeping open hearts and minds about what good mentoring looks like. So I appreciate the conversation today, Gabe, and we will see you all next time on Reflections on Research. Thank you. Bye.